We're going to read God's word together now. So if you want to pick up your Bibles, it's Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that some I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God or as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I'm perplexed about you. This is God's word. Father, we've declared already in our songs how good it is that you are our Father, that the one who created all things doesn't just call us creatures, but through the Lord Jesus Christ forgives us our sins and calls us to know you as Father. That is a rich blessing. And so deepen our delight, our conviction in that, and our desire to hold on to that and not be dragged away, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all of us at some point would have thrown something away and uh, realized, oops, shouldn't have done that. Uh, it's a bit of a mistake. Uh, uh, ready meal, whatever it is, we just jettison the, uh, the instructions and then think, well, how complicated? Oh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, I quite often on my phone, it's sort of going through things quickly, uh, delete an email and think, oh, no, I needed that. <laughs> and you sort of shake it like crazy and uh, sometimes it comes back, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know why uh, that is. We throw things away and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Some things are more serious. So occasionally we will let a friendship go and then down the line think, oh, I'm an idiot. That, that was great. And uh, it's hard to get that back now to where we were. And sometimes it's really tragic. Uh, I read last year, good book, uh, This is London, it's by journalist Ben Judah, uh, Guardian journalist, um, and he goes through different sort of, spends a chapter on about uh, 14 different immigrant communities within London, you would know all about them. Uh, they're fascinating, all sorts of things you'd learn and pick up, it's a good read. Uh, the, the, the tragic one, or the most tragic one I think, uh, were the number of Roma gypsies who have been uh, trafficked from uh, most commonly Romania, but uh, not exclusively, through Europe uh, into London with the promise, if you come to London, the streets are paved with gold. You just can't fail to make so much money. So if you pay us all, whatever it is, uh, $1,000, we'll get you to London and you'll pay us back so quickly uh, and then you can just send all this money home uh, and return home a millionaire. And thousands have done this. 
and arrived in London. And you may have observed the streets are not paved with gold uh, in quite that sense. And so many of them, as you'll see around, are there begging. Because they owe their traffickers at least $1,000. And every night, those who have trafficked it will come with their heavies and collect the money that's been gathered that day. And from about 10 o'clock at night to about 6 in the morning, uh, the underpasses under Hyde Park Corner are just full, just full of Roma gypsies sleeping rough. They sleep in their villages, bizarrely, that they've come from. They thought they were coming for riches. So they gave up their freedom, their families, their comforts, such as they were, but, but uh, you know, obviously they thought they were gaining more, but they gave all that up. They gave up their freedom and they've become enslaved to those who trafficked them here in London. And no obvious way to escape their control. That is miserable. That's a miserable reality of our city. But I tell you that because in one sense it captures the, the miserable spiritual truth that Paul is speaking of here in Galatians chapter 4. To give up the freedom you have in Jesus Christ for slavery is a miserable decision. It's a wretched decision. I wonder if you picked up the tone of uh, Paul's comments here as they were read. Uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Now that you know God, or rather known by God, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, please become like me. I became like you. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy? By telling you the truth, verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, how I wish I could be with you and change my tone. Paul is anguished. Because there are people here that he had preached to, they had become Christians, and at first been filled with enormous joy, and now they're turning away from that. And he says, it's a terrible decision. And I'm gutted. I'm distraught for you. We're returning then to this, uh, this book of Galatians, a uh, letter that Paul wrote to Christians. So he had gone to this region of uh, Turkey, Galatia, and preached the gospel, and a number of people have become Christians uh, and delighted. Subsequent, uh, he'd gone away. Subsequently, some others had come in, some not good teachers, false teachers. Uh, and they'd been saying, okay, here's the Christian message. Faith in Jesus Christ plus obedience to works of the law equals salvation. And Paul's come back and said, no, it's not that way. It's not faith plus obedience equals salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ gives you salvation. And you don't want to give up that freedom that you've got. It'll dramatically affect how you relate to the Lord. You'll relate to him as either a slave or a child. So just before our reading tonight, that was the conclusion last time. Uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you an heir. Wonderful. So that's how you want to relate to God. If you're, as, how does a slave relate to a master? It is uh, dutifully, resentfully at times, begrudgingly when the master is onerous. That's not meant to be the Christian life. 
You're not meant to think, well, I've got to follow God now because he's only gone and saved me forever. And so I now I owe him so much. And I, I'm just such a, I have to do it this way. It's not meant to be dutiful. Your Christianity is wrong. You've got something is, 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 is malfunctioning in how you're living if you think that way. Paul says you relate to God as father. Knowing that he's a wonderful parent. And it's a delight to be with him. A delight on him, a delight to live his way. He would live as a child, not as a slave. And so really, the passage, he asks these two questions. So why are you turning back to slavery, and why are you rejecting my ministry? And we're just going to look at them briefly, uh, and then draw some thoughts together. Okay? Why are you turning back to slavery, verses 8 to 11? And then why are you rejecting my ministry, 12 to 20, where it gets very personal? Okay. First then, uh, Why are you turning back to slavery? He asks them. Chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by him, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Now, what do we do with this? Formerly, before you became a Christian, verse 8, you were slaves to not gods. Now, Paul and the rest of the Bible is very clear elsewhere. There are personal, malevolent forces in operation in our world. You don't want to get crazy and carried away by them, but you don't want to be naive and ignore them. They're not God. You can't even call them gods. You you, you can call them evil powers uh, if you want, but they're not equal to God. But they're real. And when we reject God, we follow them. Now, the Galatians, what were they like? Well, they were following not gods. And you can see verse 8, the not gods is parallel to weak and miserable forces or principles. They're big believers in sort of uh, fire, water, earth, and sky, sort of these sort of forces that just somehow were behind everything. And they worshipped, of course, in, in Galatia, in that region at the time, pagan gods. So you would uh, get drunk. And worship Bacchus, the god of wine. That was very convenient. Uh, and you'd go out and uh, have uh, completely free sex with whoever you want. And you'd worship Aphrodite, uh, the god of sex, which is convenient. Uh, and you could go out and mer- uh, make a load of money and uh, pursue wealth with all your time. And that's great because you then can worship Plutus, the god of money. All very convenient for you. Uh, yeah, before you were converted, that's what you did. You worshipped these things, these gods of wine and money and sex. But you're not now. You've become a Christian. And yet, verse 10, you're turning back. And what does their turning back look like, verse 10? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, that's a bit confusing. Do you see what he says, verse 8? Before you were Christians, you lived a very pagan lifestyle, immoral lifestyle, and you were enslaved to it. And now you're turning to legalism, following lots of rules from the Old Testament that you're not meant to, and thinking that'll put you right with God. And those are exactly the same thing. Slavery. To your mind and mine, it looks very different. The bloke who stumbles out of the pub and falls over in the gutter and says, oh, darling, and uh, chases after someone down the street uh, and uh, has embezzled money from his office. 
looks very different from the prim person sat in church. Very obedient. And thinks that their obedience will put them right with God. But Paul says they're the same thing. They're just two different takes on slavery. Both are slavery to not gods. False gods. It takes a bit of getting your head round. The member of the street gang who goes out with a knife and gets into fights to prove his worth is enslaved in the same way as the woman who collects for Christian aid once a year because she thinks God will like her more when she does that. Both enslaved. Or the fundamentalist who is a suicide bomber in ISIS and thinks Allah will bless him for his murder is enslaved in the same way as a young man who gains all his value, all his worth from how many one-night stands he can have a year. We think they look quite different. Paul says it's just two different manifestations of being enslaved to not gods, false gods. Uh, I, the best illustration I, I, I can think of this, I don't know if you read, uh, or uh, a few years ago came out, uh, Mosin Ahmed's book, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. They turned it into a film. The film was got mixed reviews. Uh, but the book itself was terrific as a read. It's an allegory, so it's not particularly subtle uh, in uh, the points it's making. On the surface, there's a young man from Pakistan who uh, moves to the USA and does brilliantly. He studies, at Princeton, he studies at Princeton University. He's the brightest in his year. He gets a great job uh, at one of the you know, top institutions in Manhattan uh, and uh, meets Erica, uh, who is also a sort of beautiful and incredibly well-connected New York socialite, old money. Uh, you see, sorry, by the way, you see that sort of allegory. He meets Erica. He's in love with America. That's kind of what's going on. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, he, wonderful, and he's got everything. He's on the bright, you know, the trajectory to earning, you know, colossal uh, uh, salary. He's got the perfect girlfriend, incredibly well connected to society. He's welcomed in, uh, and then in the novel you get nine eleven, and he changes. In fact, his name is Changes, which is, you know, he's going to change. Uh, sort of, you know, uh, you know, but he changes completely. And all of a sudden, he hates Erica and America. And he thinks, who am I? What have I been living for? Uh, And he pushes away all his friends, and he quits his job, and he moves back to Pakistan, and he trains under an imam. And at the end of the... Well, anyway, do you want to know? Spoiler alert. Do you want to know? Mm, Ambiguity. Um, But uh, he's completely changed. But throughout the book, he is asking, who am I? Who am I? Oh, this is who I am. I, I, I live the materialist dream. I've got everything. Oh, well, no, maybe not. Who am I? Oh, I'm a child of, of Pakistan. I, I'm a child of fundamentalist Islam. That's who I am. Am I? And at the end of the book, is he? Uh, that's why the film's not so good, because they sort of, oh, yes, he is. Um, anyway, that's another thing. But it's ambiguity. Two ways of answering, who am I? Two ways of being enslaved. One very religious, one worldly success. But two ways of being enslaved. And Paul is saying that. The pursuit of hedonism, the pursuit of your career, 
aggressively, living for that, is slavery. Religious obedience, to put you right with God, is slavery. Both are striving. Will I ever do enough? Have I ever achieved enough? Am I really accepted? Am I accepted in this firm? Am I accepted by my peers? Am I? I thought I was last year. What about this year? And yet the same manifestation spiritually. Will God accept me? It's slavery. And Paul says, why would you turn back to that? You used to relate to God as your father. Verse 9, as he puts it, now that you know God, or rather are known by him. See, a Christian is not merely one who is forgiven, not merely one who is liberated from slavery, but one who is known by God. It's not just cognitive that you know about him, but known by God. It's utterly transforming. Uh, Adoption, I don't know what it stirs up in your head, stirs up all sorts of uh, emotions uh, in mine for various reasons. One of the things it stirs up, I look back upon uh, a child I grew up with, Nicola, um, aged three. She was adopted and moved into our village. uh, And the, the family that adopted her had the biggest house in the village. They had a swimming pool, uh, which to everyone else in our village was oh, amazing. Um, and in the summer, they were very generous with it. So, you know, this family, uh, other children of their own, but they adopted Nicola. And of course, it utterly transformed her life. I mean, I remember, you know, I was young at the time as well, about the same age, but subsequently to, uh, finding out, oh, when she first arrived, she'd been neglected. And so we just... Cling, but never, never let go. If her adopted parents left the room, <coughs> explosions of tears, even if they just popped out for 10 seconds to go and grab something, because she'd been neglected. She used to hide food because she'd been left for days on her own as a little child and had to sort of rummage through bins and things to find food. So when it came to her, she hid it. She was deeply distressed and sort of wet the bed endlessly and endlessly because that's all she'd known. And then she was adopted. And of course it took time, but the whole of her life completely changed. They were a bookish family, so she was surrounded by books and read to and did very well at school and went off to Cambridge and became a medic. Uh, and I remember, you know, on the odd occasion you get back together at Christmas time and everyone's, is, everyone's in the village at the same time. I'd look across and see Nicola and think, Oh my goodness, what an extraordinary turning point in your life. How extraordinary. That you could have just been abandoned and no one ever found you, but you were adopted. And what a difference. A Christian is one who knows they've been adopted. It's easy to take it for granted. I take it there, of course, there are, there are plenty of time when Nicola, as an adult, whatever she is in her mid-40s now, look, you know, just has to sort of pinch herself and says, of course, it wasn't always this way. I could have been left on a very different trajectory. Here I am now, uh, a GP, running a practice with family and kids of my own, and I could have looked very, very different. I mustn't take it for granted what was done for me. Because as Christians, we can do that. Been a Christian a long time, you think, yeah, 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 forgiven, and yeah, 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 God is my father, and yeah, 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 yeah. But how different it would be were that not the case. If you're moving away from Christ now, 
you're perhaps dry. You remember none of your early zeal. To turn away from him is to turn away from intimacy. The spirit of God dwells within you and you can call him father. It's to turn away from dignity. Not a slave, but God says, I'll share all creation with you. It moves away from the certainty of knowing that whatever takes place in your life, God is working for your good. It moves away from the, you move away from the destiny of knowing glory awaits you. That's what it means to be a child of God. All those things and many more. Don't move away. Why would you turn back to slavery? You don't think it's slavery, but it's just the same thing. Don't do that. Why are you turning back to slavery? And then the second question, which in one sense is the same, but it's just a bit more personal, uh, in verses 12 to 20. Why are you rejecting my ministry? He says in verses 12 to 20. Uh, Again, really, 12 to 15, he looks backwards. uh, 16 to the end, he looks forwards. Uh, Let me read it, verse 12. I, first imperative in the whole letter, by the way, first thing he's commanded them to do. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. What does that mean? Uh, I became, I'm a, I'm a Jewish Christian, but I became like you. I lived without any sort of Judaism, so you'd understand freedom. I'm saying now, become like me. Live in freedom. Don't know that faith in Jesus Christ gives you salvation. Don't feel you need to add to it. Become like me. Uh, verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I was Jesus Christ himself. It was terrific. You know, you remember when you first became Christians, you were so thrilled. It was just extraordinary. Amazing. Verse 15. Where then is your testimony? Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. That's quite extreme. I think it's an idiom is the best understanding of it. Most of the commentators say it's a bit like, oh, I'm so, you know, I'll do anything for you. I'll give you the shirt off my back, but just a bit more extreme. I'll give you the eyes out of my skull. I mean, it's, I'd have done anything for you. I was so thrilled when I became a Christian. You know that. That's what it was like. But now what's happening, verses 16 to the end, verse 16 You follow these false zealots now. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Quick contrast. Paul's motive and method versus that of these false zealots. Let's look at the the bad guys, as it were, first. What's their motive? Let's read verse 17. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want, here's what they want. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. What's their motive? They want acolytes. They want the Galatians to follow them. They want disciples of me, not disciples of Christ. These false zealots. That's what they're interested in. Numbers. It's all about the numbers following them. And people becoming like them. That's their motive. Uh, And their method, I think it's just enthusiasm. Uh, Again, verse 17, they're zealous. Very excited. They're zealous people. Verse 18, it's fine to be zealous, provided you've got a good purpose. Uh, And to be consistent, not just a hypocrite, when someone's in front of you. Lots of enthusiasm. And presumably they play upon people's pride and insecurity. Uh, But you can imagine there's these sort of false zealots arriving uh, perhaps here. And they'd say, 
Ah, uh, yeah, no, the staff, the elders, the leaders at Christ Church Mayfair, they're good people. They're good people. But they don't tell you everything. You're, you'll always miss out while you're there. You don't know the depths of Christianity. You don't know obedience like I do. And you'll never learn it there. You'll never learn it from the Apostle Paul. Do you remember that, um, no, the dreadful Star Wars films, you know, the trilogy? We all try to erase them. I don't know if you ever watched them. Uh, the Jar Jar ones. <laughs> uh, you know, they just sort of make you sort of shiver even when you think about it. Uh, but it's precisely this, uh, if, you, if you can bear to engage with me in this illustration. Um, uh, the Anakin Skywalker, he's, he's, you know, the hero. In one sense, he's a good guy. But the bad guy, the Emperor, Palpatine, turns him. Turns him and he says... I can teach you all sorts of things. I can teach you how to bring the dead back to life. You won't learn that from a Jedi. You need me. Uh, And somehow, in one of the more bizarre plot twists, he stupidly falls for the bad guy, who's so obviously the bad guy. He's got bad guy written all over his face. But uh, anyway, you know, there it is. Darth Vader, good with the force, not so bright up top. Um... (laughs) But uh, you'll never learn that from them. You'll never learn that from the Apostle Paul. You'll never learn that at Christchurch Mayfair. You need to come to us to really mature, to really push on. That's their method. You get a, I read um, uh, about two weeks ago, somewhat of a secular cousin of this. So that's the sort of spiritual dynamic. You, you, you find some very keen Christians, you play upon their insecurities, uh, and you turn them into zealots for you rather than for Christ. But uh, this was in the FT two weeks ago, I think two weeks ago. Uh, the headline was, the city loves a worry wart, uh, which I think is a made-up word. But uh, the city loves a worry wart. And uh, the article went like this. Most companies in the city, was the argument, would rather employ anxious praise-hungry perfectionists who go out of their way to please their bosses than content performers. So this is a bit of a survey uh, done, uh, and they went around HR and, and studied recruitment policies. Not all companies, of course. Don't go to your HR department tomorrow and say, I hear you're all corrupt. Don't, don't do that, of course. <laughs> but uh, privately, a number of uh, recruiters within HR uh, declared... The people we want most of all are the insecure overachievers, the ambitious worry warts. It was particularly prevalent in accountancy, law, banking, consultancy. Oops. Uh, and the, the, uh, the, yeah, they talk about one HR director in particular, they uh, blocked out his name, but they said, uh, engaging with him and seeing him in practice, it was a bit like watching a drug dealer seeking out vulnerable people and getting them hooked. You know, a drug dealer will say, oh, I'll try some of this stuff, it's good stuff, it's good stuff. Oh, you know, you want some more, you want some more, oh, yeah, you want some more. It was a bit like that. Oh, you want to progress in the firm? Well, just, you know, put in another, you know, 80-hour week, not bad, give us another 20. You know, you want to really progress. Oh, you see, you like it, don't you? A bit more, bit more money, a bit more access to the powers that be, give us a bit more, give us a bit more, give us a bit more. Uh, just like drug dealers. And so what you get is worry warts, insecure worry warts, do anything for their bosses for a short period of time until they burn out and collapse. Not all firms are doing that. 
but do you see how that works? You take the very bright and able and you play on their insecurities and you make them slaves in their offices to not gods. And in a spiritual setting, you take able, enthusiastic, keen, keen Christians and you play on their insecurities and you make them insecure and you turn them into slaves and you have to do what I say to become mature. Slavery to the bank, to the legalistic, false teachers, slavery. It's the same. Briefly, by contrast, what is, um, what is Paul's motive? How does he go about doing it? What's Paul's motive? It's wonderful. Verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. What's Paul aiming for? He wants to see Christ formed in them. That's his concern. He's not interested in they, that these Galatians become like him. He wants them to become like Christ. I'd say briefly, look, anyone here in any role of spiritual oversight, I hope that's your ambition. Uh, there are many here uh, in the evening congregation who are fantastically committed and dedicated at teaching the children, the Sunday school, the youth. Thank you. You do a brilliant job. Us parents are very, very grateful indeed. And I hope when you pray for them, you pray, will you become more like Christ? And that's your ambition for them. And for all those leading any form of small group and any form of Bible study, you know, it's great, work hard at your studies so that people are formed to become like Christ. And when you spend time with them, when you chat with, the, with people in your group, it is, of course, I hope, with always the ambition so that Christ is formed in them. They become more and more like him. I hope that's true. And even just generally for all of us, I hope that's what we long for. I hope as a church, we don't want to be the same in 2018 as we are in 2017. We want to have moved on in Christ. We want to have Christ formed more in us, individually, collectively. Not interested in treading water. We want to become like him. That's his motive. He wants to see people become like Christ. His method? Well, verse 16, he tells them the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. And verse 19, I guess this metaphor means there's huge emotional cost. And you see both, don't you? He tells the truth, but not without compassion. It costs him. He says, do you know what it feels like? It feels like I'm in childbirth. I'm so stressed out about what you're doing. That's his mode. That's how he operates. He tells the truth, but not to justify himself, not because he's angry, not because he wants to get something off his chest, not because he's irritated with the people, because he loves them. And so, of course, here's, uh, have we got it? Just, just you know, here's, here's what ministry looks like. Have we got it? There it is. Brilliant. There it is. Some of you would have seen childbirth. A few handful here would have been through it. Uh, I observe it looks painful. Uh, that's what I observe. And it goes on a long time. Now, of course, there's a strange metaphor that Paul says. I am again in the pains of childbirth. Now, in the 21st century, healthcare is pretty good. And uh, unusual for anyone to die in childbirth. But even in the 21st century, it'll still leave you utterly exhausted 
They still have anxieties in, on the labour ward. Still people running around making... It's stressful, childbirth. It just leaves you completely wiped out, exhausted. You're, you're, you've got nothing afterwards. How much more so in the 21st century? When, sorry, in the 1st century when plenty would have died. And Paul says, look, this is what ministry looks like, you know. And if you could admit it to people, it, look, it feels that way sometimes. I'm going to tell you the truth, but God, it's pretty exhausting doing so. Drained and exhausted. With mild embarrassment, I'd want to say, I, I observe this in, in the leadership here. When I go to elders' meetings, and a good amount of the time is spent discussing, praying for individuals. And the guys are deeply distressed and worried. And I see it in the staff when we gather to pray and concerns. Not perfect. But they want to live this way. They're involved with people. Two questions before we finish. Uh, first will be this. Uh, who have you chosen as your spiritual influences? Um, are they good ones? Uh, I mean, would you have chosen Paul? Would you have chosen Paul as, as the sort of spiritual mentor, father you look up to? Because um, he was pretty unimpressive. He says that he, it was a bit of a trial listening to him. He's got some sort of illness. No one knows what it is. But um, not particularly attractive. Probably not someone you want, perhaps want to introduce your mates to because he's pretty underwhelming as a character. Would you have chosen him? Oh, and he'd have challenged you as well if you were going awry. Would you have chosen Paul if you'd been around then? Well, if you want to become like Christ, you, you, you would. Okay. The risk of stating the obvious, choose your role models carefully in the Christian life and choose who you listen to carefully in the Christian life. See, choose individuals you can observe. See how they treat their families, those they work with. See how they handle disappointments. Frustrations, setbacks. See how they handle God's word. Be careful, be discerning. And then at the same time, I want to say, look, there are some tonight whom I do fear for. Probably not all of them are here. But some who have lost their joy in Christ. And do seem to have forgotten that it's wonderful to have him as father, and are going and getting spiritual counsel from those who are not giving wisdom, who are not giving them the Bible. And they're angry when you try and tell them the truth. And you know who you are. And you know we're worried for you. And please come back. Please come back to God as Father. Please come back to ministry where you're really loved, not superficially. Please come back. Because otherwise you're turning to not gods. And you think you might find your contentment there, but you're not. They're not gods. 
they cannot fulfill you. So question one, look, who have you, who have you chosen as your spiritual influences? And, and then I guess question two, is this the sort of person that you're trying to be? That actually your concern is not just do they like me, but how can I help them? become more like Christ. And, and I hope, you know, I know there are many terrific friendships here in church. I hope that is on your agenda and high on your agenda. That not only do you just want to go out and have a laugh and play sport and, and, and get on well, but you want to see Christ formed in one another. I hope that's true. And um, if you're caring for someone at the moment and you are worried for them, and you think, God, I'm exhausted by this, and I'm exhausted looking after this person, trying to help them. Yeah, there's an emotional cost. Paul says that. But keep going. Keep trying. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Don't give up. Why are you turning away? Why are you turning back to slavery? And why are you rejecting this ministry? Paul would ask. And wherever you're at in this Christian life, or even just observing and looking on in, you need to know God as Father. See, that, that, that really is the key between verses 8 and 10. You used to be like this, verse 10, you're turning back, but not only do you know God now, you're known by him. And you know how you're known by him? He's your Father. And, I, and if you're doubting that, turn back to him. As we sing in a moment... Dwell upon, really engage with the words, will you? Sometimes we just need a reminder of how good he is. My father was a terrific dad. Uh, he died just over a year ago. And um, this is on the anniversary of his death, we sort of reminisced a little bit. And uh, one thing came back to me. I don't know where it popped back into my head from. Uh, I was age 14, probably in sort of peak, the summit of obnoxious teenager, uh, I think. I think I sort of got better uh, a little bit after that. But probably at my, sort of, or nadir, I guess, it is the low point of being unpleasant. And I remember one weekend we went to visit my uh, aunt and uncle. They're a few hours drive away. Uh, and no doubt, we're going to visit uh, uncle. It was, I, I think, my response, uh, something along those lines. I was allowed to take my computer, which is quite a big deal because it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything handheld, you know, it was sort of, this sort of, um, not quite that bad, ZX Spectrum. Um, I was allowed to take a computer with me and, and play games all day long while the adults uh, engage with one another. I just grunted at them. And so the sort of, I guess, the weekend passed bearably. Uh, and then we drove back home two and a half hours and, uh, right, and you know, don't forget to get your computer out of the car. I've left it at auntie and uncle's house. Oh, well, that was daft. I'm sure it wasn't my fault. (laughs) But it's my birthday in two days' time. And all I'm getting is computer games, I hope. Um, I won't be able to play any of them. No, that was daft. Uh... And then the next day, in the night, my father had driven two and a half hours, collected, driven back, having already done it that day. It was just one of those moments I thought, huh, oh, okay, you're all right. I was 14. (laughs) Oh, okay, that is completely undeserved. Huh, I won't let you know, but secretly... I might as a teenager love you, but I'm not going to tell you.
It's just one of those moments. And he just came back to me when we were sort of reminiscing about odds and ends. So my sister said, do you remember when? I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, that's right. And sort of regressed uh, 30 years uh, in a moment. Um, what would it take to remind you? you just forgotten? Just taken for granted how good it is, if you're a Christian already, to know God as Father. The intimacy you have, because his spirit dwells within you, you can call him Dad. You can address him anytime, from anywhere. He always takes your calls. He drops everything, if I can put it in those terms, to listen to you. You know intimacy. You know the dignity. He's your, you're, not a, you're not a slave. You're not just a creature. You're not just a human. You're his. You're his child. You know the certainty that whatever's taking place in your life, it's for your good. Because he only gives you what is good. You know the destiny that he has ahead of you. In glory. Don't turn from him. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, in a room such as this, there'll be many people in different places, and we pray that the knowledge that you are a good God and being drawn into relationship as your child with you as our ever-constant loving Father, is wonderful. It is the richest blessing this world can possibly bestow, for it is beyond this world. And Father, therefore, would we cling to you. For those of us who are just delighting in this truth, would we do so even more? For those of us who have slightly drifted a little bit, taken you for granted, would you just kindle afresh in us how, a wonder how good it is to know you? For those of us who have turned... And are drifting back into slavery. Either religious or a secular cousin. We're chasing after no gods. And we think that they will bring us contentment and life. Father, would we see the folly of that? The bankruptcy of that? The deadness of that? Compared to the wonder of knowing you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.